Are you passionate about making a difference through design? Join us at the Human Centered Design Network's Circle, a new private community for change makers just like you. Connect with like minded professionals, gain exclusive rights to monthly learning opportunities, and lead the change in human centered design. For more information, see thisishcd.com. Now, let's get back into that episode. of Bringing Design Closer, the podcast focused on discussing design's role in tackling complex societal issues. Our goal is to have conversations that inspire and help move the dial forward for organizations to become more human-centered in their approach to solving complex business and societal problems. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm the founder of the Human Centered Design Network and CEO of ThisIsDoing.com, home to many of the world's best design and changemaker courses online. Uh, today in the show, we have Sasha Newkirk-Chomos, president of Dynamic Achievement based in Canada. Now, I recently stumbled on Sasha's profile on LinkedIn after reading a remarkable post about her father, Nick. And in this episode, we hear more about Nick's story and the impact that that had on Sasha's life. And we speak about leadership and learn more about the toxicity within organizations and how we manage this from an executive perspective, but also from someone who might find themselves working alongside people who play roles in compounding the behaviors associated to toxicity. It's a brilliant conversation and I know you're going to love it. So let's jump straight in. Sasha Newkirk Chomas, I'm delighted to welcome you to This Is ATD and also to bring Design Closer. I'm delighted to have you on the show today. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. It's really great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Sasha, um, maybe start off and tell us a little bit where where you're from and what you do, and maybe how you describe what you do. If you were imagine you were at a dinner party and you had to tell people what you do for a living. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, I'm based in North Vancouver, Canada. Uh, I didn't grow up here. I grew up in, in Alberta in Canada, but um, and I've lived a few places. But for the last, I guess, 12 or 13 years, Vancouver has now been home. Um, and the work that I do, what do I do if I'm at a dinner party with you and I've just met for the first time? Um, yeah. I would tell you that I'm going to get inside your head and I'm going to mess around with it a bit. <laughs> oh, <laughs> That's very um, what I yeah, what I what I do fundamentally is I work with with leaders and with teams and organizations um, to really help disrupt their thinking and to really start looking at what are different ways of how you can live your life, how you can work, how you can lead in ways that will be much more effective and much more fulfilling. So in terms of getting inside my head and messing around a little bit, tell me a little bit more about what that means. Like, well, what's your background? Yeah, my background uh, my background is actually in a host of different ways. My background has been in leadership development for the last couple of decades. And that really evolved from the fact that, uh, like most people, I worked in a mm. frontline job and I became promoted into a manager and I had no clue what I was doing because I was not prepared for what it actually means to manage and, and lead people. And so I got really curious about this thing called leadership and decided to start studying that, um, which as people who are in leadership quickly start to figure out what it really means is you need a whole background in psychology. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not a psychologist by profession, um, but I've really dived into that work with a lot of energy and enthusiasm and curiosity because 
I want to understand what drives human behaviors. I want to understand what drives me first and foremost um, and my motivations, but that's really led into wanting to understand other people. And that's really what informs my work is wanting to know what makes people tick, what drives us the way that it does, and, and how do we use that to our advantage as opposed to it using us. Yeah. Okay, we're, we're, we're definitely on the right page. We're going to have a good conversation. I can already mm -hmm. feel it. But I want to preface a little bit more around how we've managed to connect, okay? And like a number yeah. of weeks ago, maybe maybe two months ago, I saw a post on LinkedIn where you spoke about um, your dad, okay? And it was, it was a lovely photograph of you and your dad. So maybe tell our listeners a little bit more around that post because the post blew up. Sure. I know lots of my people it in did. my network had seen it at the same time. I guess a lot of my network are into the same sort of stuff. But tell us what tell us about the story yeah so um and for, yeah i certainly was not prepared for the reaction that that post got um mm. and i'm pleased in one way and saddened in another which which i'll talk about but my father was a heavy duty mechanic uh he was originally from the netherlands and had immigrated to to canada um and worked as a heavy duty mechanic for quite a number of years um was probably about maybe five to seven years away from from retirement and the environment he was in, I mean, it's a rough male dominated environment. And this is, this is already 20 years mm. ago. Um, so I, it, I'm never going to say it was the healthiest type of workplace, but there was a period of time where um, there was a new manager brought in and, and things went from bad to really, really bad. Um, and this manager was, was quite toxic, uh, was a bit of a bully. And my father, being the type of person that he was, was not the sort of person who would stay quiet. Um, he didn't like to take anything from anyone, so to speak. Yeah. And he certainly didn't like, you know, any of the other guys being picked on. So my dad was inevitably the one who would end up speaking up, arguing, voicing a contrary opinion, et cetera. But this made him quite a target um, for this manager. And and so things got quite, quite awful for him in his his work environment um where you know he, and I, I don't know all the specifics of what happened because you know obviously i mm -hmm. wasn't privy to it but i just know that he was treated horribly and this led to a number of issues for him the main one being that he started having trouble sleeping and i'm sure most of us can all relate to what it's like to have yeah. a bad night's sleep or a couple bad nights sleep but this started mm -hmm. going on for weeks uh and months and it became a really chronic um, insomniac problem. And, and this went on at least for about seven or eight months, by which point my dad then had to go off on short-term disability because there was so much cortisol and adrenaline in his system. He was having a hard time functioning, literally, like he would just be shaking from the amount of cortisol. However, going off work, I think made that even worse because now not only was he not sleeping at night, but he was spending the whole day at home without this sense of purpose, without having something to do, mm. and yet being unable to rest in the way that he would have wanted to rest. Um, and so the, in that period of time, I would say my father really started to spiral. Um, and now he was seeking a lot of answers from the medical community. Uh, they were giving him all types of sleeping pills. They were giving him all types of antidepressants. They were saying, you know, go to counseling, mm. um, you know, and, and trying whatever they could. Uh, and, and none of it was was working, frankly. And I think my father had also pinned a lot of hope on the medical community at that point um, and was, in fact, going to a sleep institute. And at one point, um, and this was just before Christmas, 
um, he had had all these tests and was going back to the sleep institute for some answers. And the doctor just said to him, look, we can't find anything wrong with you. This is all in your head. Okay. And that, I am pretty sure that that is the day that my father lost all sense of hope. And uh, I had gone back home that year for Christmas. We had spent Christmas together. I could see my dad was in a really tough spot. I was about 30 years old at the time. Um, and after I left uh, and went back, I was living in, in Ottawa at the time. I went back, uh, was off at work. And two weeks later, my father um, took his own life. Right. It's it's such a hard story to even process yeah. as you're going through that. I'm, I'm trying to yeah. trying to listen to it and, and comprehend what that must have been like for, for you and your family. So, um, yeah, but just talking about that stuff, and I can already see like it, um, we're, we're getting close to some, you know, personal territory here for you. So I want to be very cautious yeah, of this. That's okay. Um, what, what, when you, when you, when this happened, okay. Um, obviously, it's catapulted you into a, an area of your career that you've you've turned that um, that experience, that trauma, into your life, and you're obviously working Absolutely. with with leadership and and understanding that and trying to unpack that, presumably as well, what happened. But just looking at the scenario from um, what happened to your dad, um, what what that person did would be fair to call that toxic that's that's part of the toxicity yeah. kind of um that, that we're going to be speaking a little bit more around in this episode mm -hmm. um was anything done after that like was have you explored that with the with the business afterwards no i mean at the time again i wasn't even living in the same city as my parents anymore mm. i didn't know then what i know now um right i mean ironically so at that stage of my life, I had just recently become a manager a couple of years prior myself for the first time. Um, and I learned very quickly that I didn't know anything about management and leadership. So I had decided to, to do some graduate studies in leadership. And ironically, mm -hmm. the last conversation I had with my father was I called to tell him that I'd been accepted into a master's program in leadership. Mm. Um, and then a few days later, he, he was gone. So it did completely shift everything for me. I, yeah. I mean, I don't know exactly what I would have studied in leadership had this not happened, but because of what happened to my dad, I took that leadership program and I turned it into this very mm. clear focus on what is it that leaders do that impacts the health and well-being of their people? Because at the time, and this, this was, so this was about 2004, and at the time, the big thing, at least here in North America, was workplace wellness. And companies were doing things like, oh, we'll have a yoga class at lunchtime and we'll, you know, have a, you know, pedometer club, et cetera. And I don't want to knock that. Those are, that's great. But what no one was talking about really at the time was what about the mental health of people who aren't treated well? If there isn't trust and respect and fairness and, and you know, and treating each other like human beings, it doesn't matter if they go to a yoga class at lunchtime, if the rest of their day is quite, you know, dehumanizing and toxic. So that's really what what put prompted me or catapulted me into the field that I went into and a very specific focus around how do we create workplaces and leaders who have this awareness of what is it like to create a healthy environment versus an unhealthy one. So toxicity um, is, you know, it's fair to say we, we, we understand kind of bad behavior and mm -hmm. we know it's probably part and parcel of most businesses around the world. I think we'd be foolish to say that 
Um, it's yeah. not in every business. But I'd like to get you, your, understand your, your perspective on some of the, the origins of toxicity and mm. what contributes to toxicity in the workplace. One yeah. of my theories is trying to understand and unpack power and understand yeah. the different types of power within the workplace and how that can contribute to toxicity. But I'd like to get your mm. thoughts on what are the contributing factors to creating a toxic environment? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're certainly right about the power piece. Um, I mean, that definitely shows up. Power and control um, are just some real issues for us as, as human mm. beings without question. Um, it, and one of the biggest challenges in that is also, I mean, it, it's all rooted in ego in some way, shape or form, whether that shows up as power and control um, or it shows up uh, with a tremendous amount of fear and all kinds of interesting behaviors that get driven by mm. that fundamentally, I mean, I think at the end of the day, it comes down to the fact that when I am no longer able to see you and relate to you as another human being, and I, and I, so I start not only behaving in a way, but I even have the mindset of this person, I don't see as a person, I see them as an employee, I see them as a number, I see them in some way, shape or form, where we now start dehumanizing each other oh, that's just, you know, that that's just the union, or that's just, you know, that department, or that's just that, you know, again, certainly employee number, whatever, mm. we don't see each other as human beings. And as soon as that happens in the ego, and in the mind, we don't treat each other very well. And it's that it's when we disconnect from others. I mean, there's a really big root around that. I mean, we see it in the world, never mind just in workplaces, as soon as I have literally made that other person a them, and a them that I don't even that I somehow see as inferior or not as, you know, certainly not as competent as me, as, you know, as smart as me, as whatever as me, it allows me to start treating them in a way like they don't matter, that they don't they don't they don't exist at the same level that I would exist as a human being. Yeah. I I, I tend to agree. Like and it's it's something I've seen and when I've researched for businesses before, some of the mm. the bits that get said back to me is like I feel like a number or People reference yeah. their their employee numbers whenever they go to do certain tasks and they don't speak to them yeah. in terms of their first names and stuff. But I guess um, understanding in the context of the organization, right? So mm -hmm. um, power in terms of hierarchy, is that, is that what you're talking about there when you were, you were mentioned? Yep, for so sure. If you're in organizations that say you're about 20 to 40 people, Okay, and the reason mm -hmm. why I say 20 to 40 people, because I remember a number of years ago when I was doing work for a business, they said, once we moved from 20 into 40 and beyond that space, when I started to lose sight of who was who in the zoo and didn't understand, yeah. you know, what people were doing, it shifted. The culture completely shifted. Yeah. So what can people do to, and it's easy for us to say like, oh, just learn everyone's names and, you know, <laughs> learn what they do and stuff. But it gets very yeah. difficult when you start moving into the hundreds. And what ways are they, what do you recommend to people to, to navigate around this? Yeah, and it's true. It is complex, right? Um, yeah. And there are no easy answers. And I agree with you, the larger organizations get, the more complex it becomes. Because, I mean, as human beings, again, we, we just can't really operate in large groups of people. It's too impossible to know each other, know each other's names, you know, know details mm. about that person's life, et cetera. But so one of the ways in, in organizations is no matter what the size or scale, there have to be smaller units within that size and scale. 
So when I talk to managers or leaders, for example, who tell me they have you know, dozens of reports, I know already there's going to be a problem because that's not manageable. It, it means people don't aren't getting mm. potentially the support um, and attention that they might need to thrive in their roles. And it means as a manager or a leader, you can't you cannot possibly be effectively leading that many people. It, like yeah. I don't, it, it's, it's just not going to happen. So, so one of the things is making sure that teams are still kept in a smaller container. Like I, ideally, I think less than ten, but it, at least whether it's with team leads or however you structure it, but create something where there's still small enough pockets of people, so to speak, that that connection is really alive, and create small enough numbers of direct reports so that people are in fact you know able to build quality relationships as opposed to it's just a line on a chart mm. one of the things that you mentioned right back there at the start is when you became a manager and you kind of mm -hmm. had to learn on the job and yep. something that i saw years and years ago when i used to work as a ui developer and designer and the best developer in the team became a manager and mm -hmm they were the best developer and suddenly they we'd lost the best developer and we'd inherited someone who was learning on the job to become a manager. Now, when an organization goes through that kind of transformation where people are being elevated into managerial or leadership roles, what responsibility is it for the organization to look beyond the daily tasks and into the the behavioral aspects that sometimes people can just carry forward from their yeah. own day-to-day -day lives. Because it seems to me that you can conform in an organization and tick all the boxes, but for want of a better word, still be an asshole and still oh, treat people yeah. poorly. Yeah. Yeah. And and it shows up in all different ways. There's yeah. There's the asshole type. Frankly, there's the I'm too nice type. Um, which I'll be yeah. honest, that's how I was initially as a manager. I just, I wanted to be liked. I wanted, I, I mean, it was important to me to be kind, but that also isn't terribly effective as a manager either in the sense of, mm. in this sense of, I was so nice. I wasn't dealing with problems when they showed up. I wasn't being direct with people when there were performance issues or, you know, they weren't, they weren't doing, you know, things that they were meant to be doing in their job. So it can actually show up in different ways. Um, and, and I think, too much of anything can create some kind of toxicity in one way, shape or form. But yeah. I, yeah, I fully agree. One of the big challenges and what organizations have a hard time getting right. And again, I understand it. I understand why it happens this way, but they take people who are good at that frontline role, interview them, but we're, we're not looking for the skills of what does it actually take to be a manager behaviorally in terms of your, your mindset, your skills, et cetera. And then even once they're in that role, how much are they supported in terms of yeah. learning and development? And I mean, like real learning and development, not I get sent off to a course, hopefully learn a couple of skills and hopefully, you know, figure out how to change them myself and apply them. Like, like one of the challenges in leadership development, I think, is it's also not done in a really systemic and sustainable way. Uh, and that makes it hard for people when the onus is just on them, become a leader you know, you take this course, become a leader, do it all. But but we're not working in a way that's systemic that actually helps you do that. We're counting on individuals to change their own habits and behaviors and mindsets. And we just hope they're going to be successful. And unfortunately, a lot of the time it doesn't work out that way. Yeah, and it seems that a lot of organizations tend to just look at the business objectives 
and they kind of like, okay, are we making profit? Are we getting more work done or whatever it is? And the, the leadership factor that goes into it contributes to the efficiency gains that tends to happen to the manager. Like, okay, well, yeah. we do this, we, we get more output uh, and they're using the terminology of almost like engines and cars, yeah. as opposed to thinking in terms of the impact on the people that are doing the work. Um, like some of the things that I'm seeing at the moment is, and it's not too far from home, shall we speak, in, in my own life, um, mm. the shift in the pandemic for people to be at their desks doing yeah. Zoom calls nonstop all day and being completely burnt out by five o'clock, maybe not even leaving their desk for a quick walk or a breath of fresh air. There's there's an awful lot of that stuff that has crept into our lives over the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like the, the boiling pot of water has got even hotter over the last yeah. number of years and people are burning out. Like the efficiencies and the goals, the business, everything is is, you know, under pressure. We all know that. But I think the human aspect is often forgotten about. Like, what does that look yeah. like from the people doing the work? So how can someone who's in that role at the moment, who feels like the, the water is boiling and it's overflowing, mm -hmm. how can they challenge this? Because it looks like it's not just going to be at their leader's level. It's going to be at the leader's, leader's, leader's level, potentially, yeah. about re reforming what it means to be a good leader. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question because um, the pandemic has changed a lot of things. And I think it's accelerated mm. a lot of things, um, especially in terms of burnout, mental health challenges, et cetera. And what I find is particularly unique about this now is it isn't just employees who are ex experiencing this. It's leaders at all levels. The yeah. number of leaders that I work with now um, who are telling me they're completely burnt out that they're considering resigning, right? And being part of this great resignation that we're seeing. Yeah. Um, so we've got additional challenges because now we've also got leaders who are just as exhausted, just as burnt out on these endless virtual meetings and 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 having to deal with things that frankly, most of them have never wanted to deal with it. Like dealing yeah. with, you know, the pandemic itself and work from home protocols and diversity and inclusion and like all the complexity of what it means to be a leader today. Um, a lot of them are like, I don't even have time to talk about developing my people and yeah. checking in on how they're doing. So, so this, it all gets really, really complicated. However, I, in, in many cases, at least the work that I'm doing with people is about, let's come back to basics, which I think is important for all of us to revisit from time to time in terms of what do you really want your life to look like? And and that's an individual question, but then it also becomes, you know, a question for senior leaders in the organization and, and as well as teams is what do you really want this to look like in our new reality? Whether that has been all remote now with a lot of, you know, companies starting to transition to some kind of hybrid or potentially fully back to yeah. the office. It's these ongoing conversations of what do we want this to look like and what does that mean for each of us? Probably if anything else, what the pandemic, I think, has done in a good way is it's made more of those conversations possible and in fact important to have because things have shifted so dramatically for everyone um so i think we're seeing at least some of that where you know companies and teams are starting to talk about what do we want things to look like in this new world but of course we have to remember that's an ongoing conversation because it's, things are constantly shifting underneath us yeah it's hard because those things that you just mentioned there 
having people focus on them and doing them well whilst mm. exhausted is is like a yeah. cycle and yeah. um it, it's it's almost a case for and this is what i was saying to somebody earlier on today we need to pause stop mm-hmm. and reflect and it's yeah. i think a lot of a lot of my peers are at that point now where we're like okay we've we've been on this wheel for two years and um i can't imagine what it'd be like working in you know a huge organization where everyone is exhausted across the board. I'm sure there's lots of snippy emails being bounced back and forth Mm -hmm. and a lot of people kind of dodging kind of work and and so forth. And someone is going to get the brunt of it. So how how can you frame this? I mean, like, you know, we're at that point and trying to say to people who are so kind of charged and probably so in sort of entrenched Mm -hmm. in in that kind of mindset, what can you do to um, to encourage this time to to step back and pause and not not quit their jobs? Yeah. I'm not saying that, but take no, a step back agreed. and pause. Yeah, and and that's part of it. When I said to come back to basics, to again on an individual level, it's helping people get back to whatever healthy really means for them. Um, because some people some people may have thrived during the pandemic and like, oh, because I'm working at home, I have more time to take care of myself or more yeah. family time. But for some people, it's become I'm more isolated. I'm on these virtual meetings all day. And then I'm just scrolling on my cell phone or YouTube until like the wee hours of the morning. So it depends where people are at. But back to basics also means coming back to what does it mean to be a healthy human being? Because I can't Mm. even begin to be part of a healthy workplace if I'm not a healthy individual, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, like for for whatever, whatever that means for people. So that's a like a core piece for individuals that I work with. And then it also becomes, mm. it began part of the team. So it's, it's also how can we be healthy as a team in terms of how we do the work, how much we're working, how are we treating each other? Because one of the things I am seeing for sure in the pandemic, to your point about the, you know, the snippy emails, et cetera, I've mm. had to do more conflict resolution and more uh, you know, uh, investigations and more work with really high dysfunction in the last two years than I've seen in a very long time. Wow. And I, I believe, you know, and uh, at least just from my experience, that a lot of this is due to the fact that people are suffering more individually, at, you know, having a harder time, obviously dealing with everything that, that's been thrown at us. But that's all showing up, of course, and now how they treat each other. And now we have much bigger problems. So it, it's also getting back to, again, remember, this is a human being on the other side of the screen from you. Yeah. This is the human being, you know, and human beings that you are having these meetings with. Um, and the remote world, especially, I find, can make it feel even less human to a degree because we don't have to sit yeah. there and actually look each other in the eyes. I just have to yeah. look at a computer screen um, and a camera, but I'm not actually looking you in the eyes. And I find it's easier to be much more impersonal with people in this in this environment. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that you mentioned there a few minutes ago around leadership, I want, I want to play a bit of a scenario here for you. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you imagine you were, you were an employee and you were part of a business and we were working together, the dream team, Sasha, we were together. And we had to hire, <laughs> we had to hire a leader. Okay. We had to hire somebody yeah. um, to, to join the team. Okay. Like, and they were going to be a peer of ours. Mm-hmm. Um, what does a good leader look like? And what, what are you looking for in those interviews? Mm, that's a great question. Yeah. And I, and by the way, I think it's a great thing when people get to be part of the interviews for their peers and even mm. their leaders, et cetera. 
Uh, I think that's a win-win all the way around for people to have a much better idea of what they're getting into, uh, including yeah. the person being interviewed. But in terms of, I mean, what to look for in a great leader, and sometimes this might depend, of course, on the context of the organization in terms of yeah. certain skills. But in general, in general, yes, I get, I, I get the business piece of you want to look for somebody that you believe can create the results you want. I understand that. Mm -hmm. That is important. Um, there's a reason that you, you want someone in that position. And fundamentally, and of course, this is the piece that often gets missed, is you're also looking for somebody who really has the skills to build strong relationships with people, not just upwards, not just with customers or clients, but do they have the skills to build relationships so that people would actually want to engage with them, actually want to follow them as a leader. So I wanna look at things like, um, do they have the ability to even have not only self-awareness, but other awareness? So certainly some of the emotional intelligence skills, right, that you would wanna be looking for. I think those things are particularly key. And, you know, in this day and age, you know, for sure I wanna look at what's their ability to adapt, be flexible and resilient, and can hmm. they do that in a way that they not only for themselves, but will they have the awareness and the ability to be able to do that for a team of people? Yeah. So it's also fundamentally that strong ability to to be a mentor and a coach for people as well. And not just coming from tell all the time, but can you truly coach your people, help bring out the best in them? So that takes a lot of skill and a lot of self-awareness in any individual. Yeah. It's funny. The, the trust thing is something that I was hoping you would say, because I, I wanted to get your perspective on how can you um, explore that? How, yeah. how can you, how do you know if somebody is good at building trust? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you learn by experience, unfortunately, mm. but well, fortunately and unfortunately, and this is the hard part with interviews, right? Is yeah. there's only so much we can really tell in an interview the Absolutely. truth is where we really see it is once people are on the job. I mean, hence why we have, I guess, probationary periods in the first place. Mm. But I mean, an interview can just only tell us so much because trust so is much. built through interaction after interaction after interaction. Um, but within the interview context, I mean, you know, you, I certainly want to be looking at what does their track record show me? What are their reference? You know, I think references maybe underutilized or too often a check the box thing, as opposed to really yeah. trying to understand what this person's past, you know, behavior and experiences has taught us. That's certainly one way. But the truth is, when we get into an interview, we're also making our best guess as, in terms of our experience of that particular candidate. And then there, you know, really, it's about let's pay very close attention in those first few months. Because if you know, if if we don't, and it turns out this person is not the right fit and we don't catch that early on, we are setting ourselves up for something, you know, potentially, obviously, mm. you know, anywhere from mildly dysfunctional to highly dysfunctional or toxic down the line. So now, now we're getting to a, a nice point in the conversation because say that person is a, uh, is a relatively dysfunctional character and they're able to mm -hmm play the game and they assimilate into the organizational behaviors of what yeah. uh, what works for them and, and how they're able to enable their own mm -hmm. professional development and they slip through the cracks. Yeah. And within that world, employees are getting punished and yeah. they can see that that person is a manipulator and is able to work their way upwards very nicely. And um, yeah. the, the, the feedback loop is something that I'm really interested in, in mm. particular within organizations, because 
what I've seen is not always the employees feel confident enough to go above the head of the person that, that they're reporting into. Yeah. How can they um, how can they challenge that without seeing like they're they're disrespecting hierarchy? Yeah, yeah. It, I, ironically, I actually just uh, finished helping a client uh, with a harassment investigation. Uh, with and the accused in this case, uh, or the alleged harasser, was the manager. Uh, it's been mm. going on for years, years, and the wow. people above had no clue because it was exactly the scenario you're describing, where this person was so good at conveying upwards that you know they were doing this great job and everything was going well. There were some problem employees, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it, you know, and they're in different locations. This is a branch compared to head office. So there mm. wasn't even the physical oversight, especially in the pandemic. Um, so long story short, again, this has been going on for years. Yeah. Upper management had absolutely no idea until one employee decided to call. Um, and it was an employee who had just given their notice and called um, because this person had been with the company for 30 years. And wow. she's and decided that they were going to tell them why I'm actually leaving. Only because of that call that the light bulbs went on of, oh, like this this doesn't match what we thought was happening. We better we better look into this further. Um, and so they asked for my help with that. And we just um, I mean, we just opened up Pandora's box, quite frankly, um, and found like a host of of all this bad behavior happening. And 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 it's unfortunate that it went on so long. Would it have mm. changed earlier? I don't know. I just know this is how it happened. But what I do know is why doesn't upper management do something? And sometimes they're right. Sometimes upper management turns a blind eye because I have seen those scenarios yeah. too. But in a number of cases, I've also seen the fact that upper management had no clue. And it was because of the bravery of one employee that the whole situation was able to be turned around. So I would say to anyone in these types of situations, <clears throat> if you're, you, you've got to test it at least to find out, are, you yeah. know, is there going to be a, a response and is there help out there? Um, because unfortunately, if no one gets told, we can't deal with a problem we don't know about. Yeah. So it, it's a tricky one for sure, that feedback loop, because I appreciate it's not always safe. Um, and in a case like this one, the manager had convinced the team that there was no point, you know, saying anything to upper management because they would always have their back, um, which wasn't actually true. But of course, you don't know that when you're the person on the front lines. Yeah. In your experience, when leadership have been alerted to this scenario, and you may have to coach that person who is the, the offender in this instance, mm -hmm. is there hope? Is there hope for that person to, to make the leap um, and if so, let's talk about the mindset and the, the kind of work that you do to improve mm -hmm. that person. Yeah, there is hope. There's, there's um, not always, <laughs> again, it depends yeah. for sure. But, um, but in a number of cases, there is hope because one of the things I've seen over the years is it's surprising in one way, how many offenders, let's, and I, I like your word on that, offenders, yeah. bullies, whatever you want to call them the bad behaviors, how many of them are actually clueless about their behavior and the impact. And that might seem mm. odd to, to some of us who are like, I don't understand how that's even possible, but people learn, they learn it from somewhere, whether they learned it in their families growing up, whether they learned it in the workplaces that they were in. I mean, in some cases, mm. 
we're still seeing the legacy of eras of management, of command and control, et cetera, that, that don't yeah. fit in our world anymore. But some people grew up in that and that's what they knew. So that's how they behave. Um, and as an example, I mean, I worked with um, a leader many years ago. We did an employee engagement survey and the results were vicious. Like this person is a bully. They, you know, I mean, it was, and, and it all came out in this survey because it was anonymous, which again, I always think is a good thing if this stuff is going to come out. The leader, the manager in this case, was absolutely stunned, thought, really? had truly believed, I thought that's how you did things. <laughs> like, that's how I, you know, that was the type of leadership I had. It was very like, yeah. you know, tear you apart. To do, But the idea being that if I tear you apart, it'll make you work harder, so to speak. So if I criticized you, belittled you, it would make you, it would push you harder. That's what he had learned. And it had worked for him because he responded to that. And so he just thought that was how he was supposed to lead. So it was a very hard weekend for him looking at those survey results. Um, and he's, his ego, of course, certainly got highly defensive, reactive, et cetera. And he did consider quitting. Then he called me back and he said, I'm ready to do the work that it takes because I don't want to be that person that they see. I want to be somebody who's actually seen as a leader oh. in this, in this case and many cases since, but I, but I think of him as a prime example because I, it was the first time for me where I went, Oh, if the person really wants to change, they can absolutely change. And, and, and I mean, I'm pleased to say he's a brilliant success story because he's you know, gone on to become someone who is beloved by his team and is completely shifted. And I've seen various iterations of that over the years as well, where if people really come to understand and own this is the big part. And the hardest part for the ego is if I own taking responsibility for my actions and my impact, then I can change them. As long as I stay in denial and deflection and blame and pointing the finger elsewhere and justification, it, it's impossible to change. So yeah. that for me becomes the, the, the key is that if, I, if the manager or you know, whatever position they're in, if they're willing to take responsibility, then anything is possible in terms of being able to change that. Absolutely. On the blame thing, I remember a great piece of advice been given to me many years ago when I worked at MySpace way back in the day mm. and um, I was young and I was relatively immature and I was I was promoted to a head of role at 29 that was the days the, the heady days of early tech and I was blaming I was blaming people and yeah. I was you know naive and my then boss Nick he was, he was a remarkable guy he said be careful he said you point the finger and five will come back and exactly. from from that moment, it stuck with me, and it was one of the things that I carried with me um, throughout. So I was like, "Oh, yeah, that's a really good point," you know. So blame or one of the the factors mm -hmm. that I'm always looking for whenever I'm coaching. I'm saying, "Okay, who's, are they accepting responsibility, or how do they handle the finger pointing thing?" Because it's very easy to do, but it's also very dangerous, in my experience. Yeah, big time. And and that's usually one of the key indicators that someone is not taking responsibility is when they're busy blaming other people. Yeah. And and I I get it. It's a completely normal human behavior and a natural instinct to want to make the problem outside of ourselves. And I'm not saying that the the problem doesn't exist outside of us. Sometimes of course it does, but we all have a part to play in it. Sometimes my part is I stay silent and I don't speak up for myself. Sometimes my part is I get defensive. My part might also be, again, in this case, if I, especially my part is I don't accept responsibility for my part in the problem, well, then we can't fix it. 
And, and that's especially true because the longer we wait for somebody else to change or the situation to change, we can be waiting forever. Whereas if I take responsibility for my part in it and the choices that I have available to me, I can change it really quickly because we're always at choice. And I think as humans, we tend to forget that. Absolutely. It's, it's a really important point you're making. And I, I want to talk a little bit more before we, we start moving on. Um, in your work that you do, okay, and I know you're, you're extremely busy, so I'm, con I'm conscious of your time today, no. but we mentioned about the role of mindset. Mm -hmm. And at this is doing my, my other business that we, we teach and we, we train, we work with organizations, we teach them new skills, um, mainly around design and innovation. But when we originally connected, we were talking a lot more around the development of mindset and the right mindset. And a lot of this falls down to um, the, the, the poor behaviors that we're, we're discussing there, the work that needs to go into the mindset can't happen in in a short space of time it happens on a on a longitudinal space i want to get your understanding about um how you approach these behaviors and what, what would a typical um kind of i wouldn't say i don't like saying the word solution but response probably how would you respond to an organization when you were being brought in what does that look like yeah yeah, in the work that I do, and again, is it because I've been doing leadership development for many years, and I would say I started like a lot of people in leadership development do, which is I'll run some workshops and teach some people some skills, and yeah. they'll just naturally become better leaders. Um, and then I was surprised to find out that that didn't always play out very well, <laughs> because again, mm -hmm. it was the model of go to a course, hope they learn, they take it all in, and then hope they can actually apply it. Um, and there are two big things that have really shifted for me in how I do that work now. One is the mindset and two is setting up a structure that actually helps support that behavior and that mindset change in a sustainable way. So the mindset piece, first and foremost, really came to light for me because I would do these, you know, these workshops, these training sessions, et cetera, leaders would learn some skills. And then I was seeing all different versions of how those skills were applied. Um, which led me to get really curious about, well, I, to me, I thought that was straightforward. Why is it not being used this way? But it, it was, I started exploring that it also came down to what's the mindset of the leader in the first place. So for example, take a leader who has a mindset of, I know more, I'm more competent. I'm better at this. This is where, therefore why I'm a manager. Take that mindset. Let's call it a superiority mindset give that person some more skills, let's say around conflict or uh, communication, et cetera, those skills start becoming highly manipulative Yeah. where I'm now literally using that skill on people to get more of what I want to show, you know, even more so how superior I am, et cetera. Um, that's just an example of, so the mindset, if that doesn't shift, the behaviors show up in all kinds of interesting ways. Whereas instead, I'm looking for the mindset of, and, and the work that I do with people is developing the mindset of, and it's not only growth mindset, because I know that that's really well known and, 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 you know, and understood in a lot of cases. So growth mindset is a piece of it in terms of understanding that, you know, I can continue to grow and evolve and learn anything. But even beyond that, I'm actually looking for what I call the transformer mindset, which is I get that what I'm doing has meaning and it has impact. And I also understand that everything I do and say uh, is interconnected with other human beings. There's no such thing as it's just me. 
Um, and and there's a, there's a very big contrast in those mindsets as opposed to the mindset that's constantly looking at what's in it for me, what am I going to get out of this? You know, the much more individualistic mindset that doesn't work. It I mean it doesn't work in general for us as humans, but it definitely doesn't work for leaders. Um, and so part of that work is helping people become highly self-aware of what mindsets are actually driving them. And when people don't know, the best way you can tell is what results are you getting? Because the results will always indicate what are the what is the mindset that created it in the first place. If I'm having trouble in all my relationships or a good chunk of them, I can tell you full on, I don't have a connected or a transforming mindset. <laughs> I have a highly individualistic, you know, potentially superior mindset, uh, victim mindset, you name it. But you can always tell by what the results are. We're, we're coming towards the end of the episode, uh, Sasha. If people want to reach out to you, connect with you, because I know what we've discussed here is it's highly um, informative, but it's also people might want to follow up with you and, and ask you questions yourself. I know you're popular mm -hmm. on LinkedIn at the moment. We've, yes. we've covered that one <laughs> off already. So I'll put a link to your your LinkedIn anyway, so for people to follow along and maybe connect with you there. But if, if they want to check out your website and stuff, how, how well, what's the website yeah. to check out? Yeah, absolutely. The website is dynamicachievement.com. Um, and, and that gives a flavor of all the work that, that we do with organizations, especially around mindset, around culture, um, at an organizational level, if people really want to get a sense of, because we talk about what we call cultures of excellence and mindsets of excellence. If people want to get a sense of where do I think my culture is at, we do have um, a free scorecard, takes only like a minute or two to complete, um, which oh. allows you to do that and then have a, a complimentary conversation with us just to get a sense of what do we think would be important for your organization to take a look at. And for individuals nice. as well, whether it's around, you know, executive coaching, leadership coaching, uh, they're welcome to check that out as well and, and reach out anytime. I'll definitely put links to those in the show notes. Um, but thanks so much for your time, Sasha. I've, I've really thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you today. Um, so take care so there you have it that's all for this episode of bringing design closer if you like this episode feel free to visit thisishcd.com where you can access our back catalogue of over 100 episodes with episodes related to service design product management design research and much much more now, if you're interested in design and innovation training feel free to check out our business thisisdoing.com where you can join online classrooms and learn from the world's best design and innovation leaders Join the This Is HCD newsletter where you'll receive updates from the network. And also, if you're interested, apply to join the Slack community on thisishcd.com. Stay safe and until next time, take care. <laughs>